Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verse 13. As you find your place in Luke, you can take a peek at the screen if you like and see what we have planned for you. Sunday morning services the next six weeks, including in green. I think that's green. Three extra special Sundays beginning next week when our high school and college ministries lead us in worship. And then on May 10, our men's ministry will lead us in celebrating Mother's Day. Won't that be fun? Uh, The women's ministry will take a turn in June on Father's Day. I'm looking forward to men leading us in celebrating mom and women leading us in celebrating dad. On May 17, come ready to tap your toes and sing along with some gospel music during our spring choir concert. There is um, exciting and fun stuff ahead. Mixed among these special events and beginning this morning, I thought um, that during these 40 days or so after Easter that uh, we take a look at together some of what Jesus was up to during those 40 days after the very first Easter, after his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven 40 days later. So come, let's go and see what God has in his amazing word, shall we? Your Bibles are open to Luke chapter 24, verse 13, where Luke tells us of an encounter, an encounter between Jesus and two of his followers. It's still Sunday, Resurrection Day. Jesus has risen from the dead and has already appeared to several women and maybe already appeared to Peter too. We're not quite sure of the timing of Peter's encounter with Jesus that day. We only know it was that day. Um, Whether before or after he appears on the road to Emmaus, we're not sure. But in any event, it's still Resurrection Sunday when Jesus literally catches up to two of his followers walking along the road slowly, I'm sure, from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. Let's begin reading at Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, Resurrection Day, two of them, two of Jesus' followers in context from the previous story, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one 
who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. That third day reference, likely, likely a nod toward first century Jewish custom at least that the spirit of someone who had died would linger around or near the body for three days. And once the third day had passed, that spirit would move on, and they were considered officially, legally, completely dead, with no hope of um, reviving. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. Why does Luke include this story, do you suppose? Mark references it with one or two lines in passing. Matthew and John don't even mention it at all. Only Luke gives us any detail, and quite a bit of detail at that. Why do you think he includes this story? Two main reasons, in my opinion. First, this encounter with Jesus emphasizes that we recognize, understand, and know Jesus as Messiah through both word and sacrament. Through both word and sacrament. The two travelers, the two travelers are crestfallen, and not because they dropped their toothpaste. It's the only joke I got in the whole sermon, so (laughs) praise God. Oh, I heard a hallelujah over here. When Jesus asks them, when Jesus asks them what they're talking about as they walk along the road, they're so upset they come to a complete stop. They just stop walking in their despair with their faces downcast, the NIV says. You can almost hear 
You can almost hear their sigh as they take a breath to answer Jesus' question. What are you talking about as they're walking along, right? And then they just stop. Have you ever been there? They're despondent. They're crestfallen. They're downright gloomy. And they don't recognize it's Jesus standing right there next to them. And they come to recognize Him only after Jesus explains what the Scriptures say about Him and only after Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now, while almost everyone agrees this meal was probably not what today we call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or Communion, For example, there's no mention of wine. Jesus doesn't say anything linking the bread to his body or sacrifice and other things scholars have pointed out. At the very least, it certainly echoes and brings to mind the very first Lord's Supper three days earlier, three nights before, the night before Jesus died. And so Luke highlights in this story, it's both word, scripture, And at least the sacramental-like event, Jesus breaking bread with them, giving thanks and giving it to them. It's through word and sacrament that the two travelers come to recognize, understand, and know it's Jesus, and he really is alive. Luke makes a similar emphasis in the book of Acts. You recall, you Acts experts, yes, that Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch also on a road from Jerusalem. And Philip explains the Scriptures to him. There's the Word. And the eunuch then is baptized. There's the sacrament. Again, Word and sacrament, instrumental in some way in recognizing, understanding, and knowing Jesus. So that's one reason, I think, that Luke gives us this story. And remember, gives the story to the early church some 30 years after Jesus has left. That's when most date the writing of Luke. Stay close, Luke urges the early church and us. Stay close to word and sacrament, and you will indeed encounter and recognize that you're in the very presence of Jesus himself. Second, and I'd like to spend most of our time this morning, the rest of it, in fact, unpacking this one. Luke gives us this story, I think, to emphasize that we recognize Jesus as Messiah through suffering and service. And to miss that about Jesus, in my opinion, and I think in the Gospel writer's opinion too, to miss that about Jesus is to miss Him entirely. To fail to recognize him. You say, where do you get that? Well, Jesus' immediate question after the two travelers share their disappointment centering around Jesus' mistreatment and being killed. Jesus' immediate question is to ask them rhetorically, didn't the Christ have to suffer these things? And Jesus' exasperation with the two might be because, oh, they're so close to understanding The two mention Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth, where Jesus was rejected in his own hometown when he spoke there in the synagogue. 
The two also mention Jesus as prophet. And prophets in Scripture, have you noticed, always faced hardship and rejection from the people. And so the two travelers are so close and yet so far from seeing, from recognizing Jesus who He is. The Messiah who had to suffer as did the prophets of old. And so Jesus seizes on the prophets. He tells them we read of Moses and all the prophets. We don't have the exact scriptures or teaching Jesus gave that day to the two travelers. But a safe guess perhaps in the context of suffering and prophets and Jesus suffering at the hands of the leaders of Israel is that Jesus reminded the two, showed them in Scripture, that the prophets suffered and so too the Messiah needed to suffer. Perhaps Jesus spent some time with them in Isaiah. We'll ask Him someday. I'll be shocked if He didn't. Where in chapters 41 through 54 of Isaiah, the prophet elaborates on the suffering servant sent to redeem Israel. How? Through His obedient suffering service and death. Perhaps Jesus reminded the two of passages like Isaiah 53 where God says of this suffering servant Messiah, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And who can speak of His descendants? For He was cut off from the land of the living. It was the Lord's will to crush Him and cause Him to suffer. By the way, in our similar story in Acts with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, do you remember which passage had the eunuch stumped? Which book and chapter at least? Don't think too hard. Isaiah 53, good. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, the eunuch is puzzling over. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. One huge reason the two travelers are in despair over Jesus' death. One underlying mountain of a hurdle for them to recognize it's Jesus standing right there is they simply cannot get past their expectation that Jesus would liberate Israel then and there from the Romans. The Messiah was supposed to liberate Israel. They tell Jesus, we had hoped He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And by their reasoning, He couldn't very well do that now that He was dead. These two travelers, as well as Jesus' disciples, despite throughout His ministry, very clear teaching from Jesus, telling them He must suffer and die, even that He would be crucified and that He would come out of the grave again. They just couldn't get past their own expectation that the Messiah, if indeed it is Jesus, as many believe that He was, He would blast the Romans and liberate Israel. And so they missed by a mile that the Messiah needed to suffer and die in order to liberate Israel and indeed the world. Jesus as Messiah came to suffer and die. And He also came to serve. Luke highlights the servant part of suffering servant in our passage. Did you notice who takes the role of hospitable host during the meal, even though He was invited as a guest? Jesus does. This is very odd. It 
jumps out of the story to any first century reader. What in the world is an honored guest doing serving by breaking the bread? And so Luke highlights that detail, I think, to show us that Jesus is the Messiah who serves. Another well-known event in Jesus' ministry, which is similar to our story this morning on the road to Emmaus, is the feeding of the 5,000, also recorded in Luke, Luke 9, I believe. In that story, as in this story of the two travelers, it's getting late. And so Jesus takes the bread in that story and fish, gives thanks, breaks them, we read, and gives them to the disciples to set before the people. He again takes the role of hospitable host and serves food to the hungry crowd. It's no coincidence that in the very next story in Luke, immediately after that event, is Peter's famous declaration that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, in the wake of the story where He is the one who serves. So Isaiah's prophecy of suffering servant is fulfilled. He was right. Go figure. Jesus the Messiah is the one who suffered and died, and He's the Messiah who serves others. Jesus is indeed the suffering servant. And the way Luke sets up the story is that the two travelers didn't recognize Jesus really because they didn't understand Jesus came to suffer and serve. Only when they understand and see Jesus as the suffering servant do they know who He truly is. Do they recognize that He is alive and standing right there. Now, at first thought, we might conclude today that we don't have exactly the same misunderstanding that Cleopas and his friend had that first Easter. Today we clearly realize that Jesus indeed need, indeed did need to suffer and die. We understand that he is indeed the suffering servant. And you know, we need to give Cleopas a break. Jesus has Jesus had just risen that same morning. We've had an extra 2000 years to figure this out, okay? But on second thought, maybe we do fall into Maybe we do fail sometimes. Maybe we do fall into the same misunderstanding that Jesus in our passage calls foolish. See, part of their problem again was they expected the Messiah to fix everything then and there, right now, and to fix it all in the way they expected. As we've said, for them, defeating the Romans, reestablishing David's throne, the sovereignty once again of Israel. In Jesus' death, was simply unthinkable to them because he couldn't do that if he was dead. So one way to look at their problem, the problem of these two men, is they not only misunderstood the suffering servant aspect of Jesus, they, un they misunderstood the timing of Jesus making everything right. It didn't meet their expectation and desire. And that, my dear friends, is something... I think we still struggle with today. At least I know I do. Do you? Do we sometimes expect that Jesus will necessarily make everything right, right now and right now in the way I expect and would like? Hey, I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I'm still having a hard time. Life is still hard. What's up with that? While the Romans aren't around anymore, 
There's the matter of the devil and the considerable power and latitude God seems to allow him, does allow him, and the considerable power and influence he has on the world. What's up with that? And then there are those others who hurt us by their sinful choices. What's up with that? And finally, we continue to struggle with our own sin and sinful choices and temptation and, and, and often suffer the results of our own sin. What's up with that? See, the two travelers didn't see the results they wanted in their timing, and so they concluded Jesus' death got in the way. And maybe when we don't get the results we want and expect from Jesus, and when we want them, we sometimes conclude, well, Jesus leaving and going to heaven got in the way. Or at least something's gone wrong. Where is He? I thought He was the one that would redeem everything. Everything. Well, wow. Look around the world. Sure isn't redeemed yet, is it? What went wrong? We might be tempted to ask, even today. And various groups within Christianity even have set out to answer the question of what went wrong. Or what's going wrong. And in several different forms, some very overt and some more subtle, their suggested answer is that the reason there's still pain and suffering in the life of a Christian is because there's not enough faith. People simply don't believe enough. They don't trust God enough. According to these groups, are you still hurting even though you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Well, you just don't believe enough in Jesus. You must be doing something wrong. And so really, the key to escaping pain and suffering necessarily right here, right now, it's all up to you and somehow mustering up enough faith. And once you do, once you do, then all your problems will go away. You know what you need to do? You need to pray that prayer of Jabez a lot. Ask God to increase your boundaries a lot. And if you mean it enough, if you believe it enough, then He will necessarily, because you mean it and believe it enough, make all your problems go away. Now to be sure, we should all strive to deepen and have as much faith as possible. The more faith, the better. And we should pray a lot. But let's say you somehow managed to have as much faith as the Apostle Paul. He had a lot, right? Yeah. And you pray all the time, like Paul. Well, I know you are paying attention in our series of Acts. I'm sure you remember what nevertheless happens to Paul. Oh, good heavens. Beaten, ridiculed, shipwrecked, stoned and left for dead, suffering from some physical illness, his thorn in the flesh, God did not heal, arrested although innocent, and finally murdered for believing in Jesus. Do you suppose that was all because the man didn't believe enough or didn't have enough faith? Of course not. It always bothers me whenever I hear about someone teaching that a lack of faith is necessarily responsible for pain and suffering in life. What an insult to Paul. What an insult to every biblical hero of the faith who suffered because of their faith, ironically enough, Including Jesus Himself, who lived 
the perfect life, had the most faith any human being could ever possibly achieve and can't really achieve this side of heaven, but who nevertheless suffered horribly. We wouldn't dare suggest Jesus suffered because he didn't have enough faith, would we? And yet, the health and wealth gospel folks continue to spin this web of lies. It's foolishness, in Jesus' words. Oh, Jesus will absolutely make all things right one day, just not necessarily today. And Cleopas and his friend, and perhaps we too, often need to be reminded that the timing of Jesus making all things new, it's coming to be sure you can count on it. It's just not fully realized yet. Peter is walking on the water next to Jesus. Remember that story? And he begins to sink. And Peter panics and cries out in fear. Jesus grabs him, pulls him up, and asks Peter about his faith. Where's your faith, Rocky? And we necessarily link Peter's lack of faith to him sinking. Another take on that story, however, is that Peter's lack of faith is linked to his panic and perhaps doubt because he's sinking. He doesn't need to panic. He shouldn't doubt, even though he's sinking. Now there's faith. Why? Because Jesus is right there. And if he's sinking, it must be God's will he sinks. And so his lack of faith is seen in his panic and doubt in the face of bad things happening. In his case, he's sinking into the sea. Someone this morning will remember Jesus' words that even a little faith, the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Amen? And... Let me ask you something. If we had all the faith in the world, a zillion mustard seeds worth of faith, and we went with that faith and commanded that mountain to move, if God doesn't also want that mountain to move, how far is that mountain going to budge? It's not going anywhere. Regardless of how much we believe it will. Not unless God wants it to. As you know, tomorrow is the 10th anniversary of Columbine. In the days and years that followed this enormous tragedy, I've heard it said, and I still stumble across it once in a while today, and the saying or what I hear said goes something like this. Well, that's what happens when you take God and prayer out of the schools. Hey, having prayer in schools is a great idea, in my strong opinion. I wish God and prayer were still in the schools. But to suggest that if God and prayer is in the schools, that no pain and suffering will take place. It's health and wealth gospel, folks. Listen, whatever happens anywhere is all due to God's will and not due to how much faith we can muster against bad things happening.
And so when bad things happen, asking what went wrong is really the wrong question to ask. Nothing ever can go wrong with God's great plan. He's that sovereign. Not even when bad things happen. The Bible... The Bible proclaims this theme as loudly as any other. I've collected a few verses for you on the screen. Paul writes to Timothy, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus says, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Persecution is painful, by the way. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There is persevering under trial presumed in that added beatitude. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I don't understand the name it and claim it, folks. Do they read over these verses? Ignore them? For the life of me, I don't understand how they get there through the overwhelming revelation of Scripture that followers of God, followers of Jesus, will experience hardship no matter the level of their faith. And it doesn't mean that somehow their faith is lacking, necessarily. In our Emmaus story this morning, Luke mentions twice the hearts of the two travelers. Did you catch it? Their hearts are both slow to believe, yet also burning within them. Does that describe us sometimes too? Slow to believe, yet on the same time feeling this fire for God. We burn for God, but nevertheless we're slow to believe. Slow to trust. Why slow to believe? And to go all in with God, despite maybe a stirring in our souls and a fire for God. Do you think in part it might be because the pain and suffering that hits us daunts us, makes our faith waver like Cleopas and his friends? My friends, when it comes to hardship, the Bible is very clear. It gives us a heads up. It tells us to expect it. And when it comes, lean into it. And don't you doubt for a second that somehow because of the hardship this thing has gotten away from God. And know that Jesus is right there with us in it and nothing will happen or won't happen that He doesn't have ultimately under control. Jesus was right next to Cassie in the library. He promised He would be. And He always keeps His promises. And he was right there with those others murdered or wounded that day. What happened to them had nothing to do with their measure of faith. And Jesus is right there when we start to think, when we experience pain and suffering. And it's not about our lack of faith. It's about sin and chaos still in the world. And for whatever reason that escapes us, God doesn't always step in and keep bad things from happening. Wow! Do we wish he always did? But he doesn't. But when he doesn't step in and stop it, do we nevertheless have faith in God or do we panic, doubt, 
shrink back and scream out in fear as we're sinking. If someone points a gun at us and asks if we believe in Jesus, do we have the kind of faith, that measure of faith, that even in such horrible circumstance answers yes? The kind of faith that not only survives but even thrives in adversity? Growing stronger when we start to sink instead of weaker? Confident and sure nevertheless? in the goodness and love of God, come what may, even if He doesn't take it away? Oh, may that be our faith, church of God. See, if we miss that about Jesus, if we miss that He is the suffering servant, if we miss that as followers of Jesus who take up our own cross daily to follow Him, If we miss that we will and must necessarily suffer and serve just like Jesus, if we miss that about Jesus and our call to follow Him and continue His ministry, we too will end up anxious and in despair and crestfallen with our faces downcast like our two Emmaus friends. And we won't recognize that for real, Jesus is nevertheless right there with us. And testify all the more that Jesus is alive. Instead, we'll conclude he's gone or something's gone wrong. But he isn't wrong. He isn't gone. He's alive. And he's with us. And recognizing Jesus is alive means recognizing, embracing, continuing his ministry of suffering servant in and through us and our lives of witness of the suffering servant remaining loving and obedient no matter what, living in that hope, the certainty of that day when every problem, every pain, every every tear will be no more when Jesus comes again. So take heart, my friends, when bad things happen even to us. Jesus is there with us on that road. He promised never to leave us. Expect to see Him there with you. No. He's right there when you need Him walking with you. Don't make the mistake of Cleopas and friend and miss Him. Don't doubt He's there simply because bad things happen. He told us they would happen. And He was right, yes? But He also told us that He would be with us to the end of the age. He'd never give us anything that would completely overwhelm us that we and His help instead couldn't handle. And He'll be with us to the end of the age. That's a long time. Like forever. Come what may. And my friends, He's right about that too. Faithfully keeping that promise too. Jesus is alive. In the life and body of the church, we recognize Him in word and sacrament. sacrament, And we recognize Him in suffering and service too. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, on this day in particular, we join, this day and tomorrow, we join in prayer with surely thousands of people over what has happened at Columbine ten years ago. Join Craig 
I joined Craig in praying for all of those affected, including, Father, the family of those who got caught up in sin and did these terrible things. This day must be especially hard for those that were left behind, too. I don't know where they are in their walk with you, Father, but I pray that you would make yourself known to them and give them to peace and courage as this day tears again at them, too. Father, help us to remember that might doesn't always make right. Help us to remember that the one that we follow came and defeated the world by giving up his life not by taking the lives of others. Would you find us faithful to that call and witness? And give us, Father, that faith that when bad things happen, we don't doubt and begin to wonder what went wrong. But when bad things happen, that faith that especially kicks in and grows and glows and swells in the certainty that you're right there with us. We love you, and in Jesus, the risen Messiah's name, all God's people said, Amen.